2: Welcome to another nightlight excursion into a fascinating subject and for about the last two minutes it has definitely been an excursion. Um, I became aware of Brian J. Jones's uh, biography of Washington Irving a few years ago when I uh, read an exuberant review in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette I got him to be the guest for tonight and wanted him to uh, return to be a guest to do his Jim Henson biography and Barbara said well I want to do that one Um, I said you know but I found the guest and she said well it's my network so uh, Brian is invited to be back uh, but who knows who the host will be for that one. Anyhow, uh, Brian is a New York Times bestselling biographer of people who made great impacts on pop culture. And tonight is, you know, we'll be covering Washington Irving, uh, but he has uh, biographies of Jim Henson, George Lucas, and Dr. Seuss. And if you want to learn more about our guest. His website is Brian J. Jones And I just want to say uh welcome Brian to Nightlight. How, Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Can you hear me? Good evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh got yeah, a little problem with um you know the mic <laughs> uh
1: uh,
2: I could, uh Barbara could uh couldn't hear me, I, but I could hear her. I you know, uh, think we got something, uh, you know, plugged in at, at the last second. I, I apologize. I, I you know, we usually don't have that problem. Then uh, Skype changed their screen. So and, anyhow, it, yeah, I, that's, uh, I said UG uh, and a few other things too. But <laughs> yeah, you know, we're we're uh, under underway yeah i think we have just uh fascinating subjects and i am have about uh six books are here so he, here in front of me um you know of course one of them is your washington irving biography and that's a fantastic book uh well done and you know um I'm really excited to get into such an important American literary figure, and uh, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed of, about your book is I was already a fan of that like 1820s, 30s, and 40s time period, and you know, Poe, Melville, Hawthorne, um, you know, Squire and Davis writing. Yeah, you that know, they're uh uh you, know, uh you know, the first book published by the uh Smithsonian about all the uh, mounds in Ohio. You know, it's just really uh interesting look at the creativity from that time period and one of the people behind that is um Washington Irving. So um, let's just start off with some of the biographical basics, like you know the parents and brothers and sisters. You know <laughs> when was Washington born? Sure. Take it from there.
0: Yeah, so Irving was born in New York City on April 3rd, 1783, which is actually the week that the American Revolution ended uh, and died in November of 1859, right before the Civil War began. So Irving sort of bridges that that era (laughs) there in American history. Um, He's the son of – he's the youngest of – I'm going to forget the number, now. I think – seven surviving children ultimately uh, Uh of a very successful – Merchant in New York, um, and is, is he's he's very devoted to his mother. Clearly thinks his mother is a saint. He at a very young age, his teachers are frustrated with him, sort of throw up their hands and declare him a dunce, and uh, despair that he will ever do anything with his life. Um, but Irving is one of these guys who you know was is. <laughs> I compared his, his literary taste more with, um, you know, it, it was nowadays that he'd be the kind that was sitting reading, reading comics and, uh, you know, Mad Magazine and, and classics. But, but he's not really, you know, one of these guys that's, you know, very erudite and was reading, you know, the, the Roman classics and the things that, you know, presidents were reading at the time. Irving was very well read in the pop culture of his era, uh, and that mentality really sort of informed the way that he wrote. In fact, as he moved forward, he wrote in very, you know, normal American English, which makes him a unique voice in that era. Um, so he he is um, he's actually named uh, for George Washington because, as I said, he was he was born the the week the American Revolution ended. Um, he was actually, as as a child, he was uh, when when Washington was parading through um, New York City um, to go be um, sworn in as president there in New York. Irving had this nanny who was something of a Washingtonian groupie who carried him into the city and put him <laughs> on her shoulders um to, to wave with the president and then walked him over to Washington at one point and said, You know, here's a here's a Here's a boy who was named after you, and Washington, according to Irving, at least, placed his hands on Irving's head and blessed him <laughs> as his namesake. There's actually a mm-hmm. if you go to Washington Irving's house in Tarrytown, uh, hanging in his bedroom is a little watercolor of that moment. I mean, whether it actually happened or not, it's a fantastic story. And you sort of again, there's Irving bridging, you know, the American Revolution with the modern era. So, um, <laughs> so let me build up to the arrow you yeah. we were talking about. So, so yeah. one of the one of the first things Irving does uh, you know, as a young man is he, he ends up in the law offices of a New York attorney named Josiah Ogden Hoffman um, to, to study law because that's what promising uh-huh. young men of that era kind of did was they studied law. And um, Irving was much more interested in sort of dabbling with his own writing than studying law, and he visits Canada on extended business trips and starts keeping a journal um, – he starts submitting letters to the Morning Chronicle in New York City under a pseudonym, um, under the name of Jonathan Oldstyle, which is a name he'll come back to later on in life. But um, Irving's writing letters pretending to be sort of this old, you know, this this old gentleman in New York who's talking about the theater district and things like that. It, they're very, you know, interesting and fun letters. Um, and the and the public kind of you know thinks thinks these are these are very entertaining and very you know they, they don't know who who this is behind it although Irving is the worst kept secret behind uh, the Jonathan Old Style books or the Jonathan Old Style letters. So um that's sort of Irving's first brush with local fame and he really kind of likes that and eats that up. Um, probably the major thing that happens in his life around this time is in 1806 or so. Well well let's let's, let's start with with 1807. Um, he and a bunch of his young friends, uh, Governor Kemble, uh, Henry Brevort, who's sort of a New York blue blood, James Kirk Paulding, they formed this group of, uh, you know, sort of artistic young men who called themselves the Lads of Kilkenny. And uh, Irving starts putting together this magazine with, with uh, Paulding and his oldest brother, William, who would eventually become a congressman, that they call Salma Gundy. And it's sort of the equivalent of Mad Magazine in 1807. Like I said, Irving Irving was sort of raised on this pop culture, and like he creates something that's almost like the Onion or the Mad Magazine, and and he's po- poking fun at New, at New York culture and New York styles and New York personalities. And it actually is successful, even sort of beyond New York. It gets a little bit of notoriety. It goes about 20 issues. Irving. Uh, it ends up they end up canceling it, bickering over over uh you know over money with her publisher which would be a theme throughout irving's life as well
2: right um, we'll, we'll get into but
0: that rushed and then the next to, the next big project he has and this is one we can talk about a little more in depth because i think this this is a hugely important project in his life is um he he writes a fictional you know what we would call nowadays a mockumentary a fictional history of new york mm-hmm. um and he He's writing at the same time he's sort of wooing the daughter of the judge he's working for, a young woman named Matilda Hoffman, who uh, dies of tuberculosis at age 17. And Irving, in, in his despair, goes whizzing up river up to Hudson and finishes the book in Kinderhook, and then he does something really, really brilliant. So uh, in, the, in the weeks leading up to the publication of this book – he's going to publish it in December of, of uh, 1809 – he starts putting fake ads in the newspapers in New York City uh, saying, I'm the proprietor of uh, a hotel here in New York City, and there was a guy in my room. So he looked sort of this you know, demented old man. He didn't look like he was in his right mind, and he went staggering away from my hotel, and he didn't pay his bill. Um, and so uh, I'm, need, I'm trying to find this guy, so he'll, he'll pay his bill. Um, his name is Dietrich Knickerbocker, and he left behind this big book. Uh, that he was working on, and if he doesn't show up to to pay his bill, I'm afraid I'm gonna have to you know publish this book to get some sort of you know money back on this deal here. Uh, New York City is on fire with this like everybody's following this the story they're hiring search parties to go find Diedrich Knickerbocker another letter Irving places about a week later says oh I I was on the stagecoach heading north and I saw him wandering by the side of the road and you know Irving's really got the got the public right where he wants them and then finally uh on publication date he says you know all right well we're gonna we're gonna have to publish this book Diedrich Knickerbocker did not show up to claim his book so we are going to publish his book and to huge interest Irving publishes a History of New York by Diedrich Knickerbocker. Again, a, a fake history of New York, um, but it really rockets Irving to fame. I still think to this day it's one of his finest moments. It's one of his funniest books um, he's writes it, you know, as a young man. He went back many years later when he was the most famous man in the world, and sort of touched the book back up and took out a lot of the dirty jokes and uh, and you know some of the takedowns of President Jefferson at that time. Um, but that to me is like when Irving really starts to find his voice. And uh, Diedrich Knickerbocker, in fact, this is where uh, the New York Knicks get their name from. Diedrich Knickerbocker is the Nick in New York Knicks. To, to be a Knickerbocker became all thing meant to be all things New York. Um so if you're a, a Knicks fan you can thank Irving for helping give them their name.
2: Yeah uh, that that story about the you know, putting the ads in the paper you know, that, uh, that's some great uh uh pre-publicity it's just really ingenious.
0: Yeah I mean, I mean that's that's 1809 that's viral marketing in 1809 yeah. that's, it's brilliant.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and okay, so in the history of New York—that's where we uh, first encounter Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow.
0: No, that comes along uh, much later. That, uh, that, comes, that's later. Okay. The, yeah, that
2: comes along, yeah, that comes
0: along eighteen, nineteen, and
2: twenty. But it, it's just more of a continuation of the uh, Sal Salma Gundy uh, comedy. It, it, you know, he's just doing it on his own.
0: Yeah, so Ir- Irving's writing history of New York all, all on his own, and it's you know again it's it's you know it's filled with slapstick. You know he's making fun of these you know these <laughs> these Dutch governors that are you know their pants are ripping and and you know they they fall off their horses, they're throwing onions at each other, and they land in cow manure on the ground. I mean it's it's the Marx Brothers that he's got going on in the book. I mean it's it's inter- it's 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 entertaining one moment after another. Um, this is what makes Irving sort of, again, famous all up and down sort of the, you know, the, well, at this point, the original 13 colonies, all up and down the American seaboard. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Irving, you know, has got some modicum of fame now at this point. Uh, he becomes a magazine editor. Um, he's editing a magazine called The Analectic during the War of 1812. Um, he actually uh, um, is one of the first American publishers to publish a poem by... Francis Scott Key, and he says, you know, this, this poem mm-hmm. by Key, I think, could really go places. <laughs> and sort of, he's really one of the first publishers to fall in love with what would become our national anthem, publishes it in the pages of the wow. Um And he ends up, you know, he, he, and even then he goes back, and he's still messing. He's like George Lucas with Star Wars in a way. He's never content with, with the history of New York, and he has to keep going back and adding to it and polishing it and ending it. But there is one moment in about 1812 when in one of his revisions, he gives us sort of the first version of Santa Claus. Um, he talks about somebody having a dream of St. Nicholas and flying over the treetops in his wagon and, you know, lay, and laying his finger aside of his nose. So, I mean, Irving, Irving is creating Santa Claus there in 1812, well before you know, Clement Moore did.
2: Um, so if, if,
0: we're, if you're a fan of Christmas, Irving is, is already laying the ground for, for Christmas there in 1812.
2: Okay, and you know, as we get further into the show, uh, you know we'll talk about his friendship with another Christmas author, uh, Dickens. But you know we'll we'll get to that. It's really interesting how there, even though the Atlantic separated. You know the colonies or early states, uh, you know, from England. There, there there was really a a lot of communication still going on, and it seemed like there was um, some exchanges of ideas. Uh, There's, I think that's what uh, I find to be so interesting in that time period is the the writing was just so creative it it, it just l- left um a wonderful legacy and yeah, I mean, so
0: so Irving's, you know, the the lightning in a bottle that Irving gets is comes along with the sketchbook, and that takes us to about uh-huh. 18, That takes us to eighteen nineteen. So you know, Irving hasn't written anything in in about ten years. When he starts taking on the sketchbook, he's written that history of New York, and uh-huh. he's sort of dabbled in magazine editing. And Irving, right. you know, Irving is is always looking. <laughs> he's always looking for a, a, a full time job. Uh, that he can be appointed to by somebody else, and he's constantly sort of going hat in hand, and trying to get positions. And his brother is a congressman, and, and at one point, um, Irving has to, Irving goes to Liverpool to take over the family business, which is failing. And mm-hmm. for Washington Irving, that is the worst punishment he could possibly have had. Um, going through family <laughs> bankruptcy to, to Irving was humiliating. You know, you had to appear in court and you know stand there while everybody took pot shots at you uh, for your you know your debtors, and it was just awful, and it was a terrible experience for Irving. And you know, really took up his life for about two years, uh, doing nothing but trying to bail out the family business and save the right. family. Irving was a very devoted, mem- you know, member of his own family. He-, he and his brothers were very close, and Irving saw it as his obligation to do this, but was absolutely miserable doing it. And finally, decides to start dabbling in short stories. And, and there's a there's sort of a, a really key moment in American literature, actually, when his brother William, the congressman, writes to him from the United States, where he's you know a sitting congressman, and says, "I found you a job. Um, you know, you can go be the you know the executive assistant to the secretary of the Navy. Um, you know, I've already talked with the president about it. I talked with the secretary of defense about it. Um, come, or secretary of war, I guess at that time. Uh, you know, come come home." And we have a job for you, and then you could you could write on the side if you want because this pays pretty well. And Irving writes back to his brother and says, you know, I'm going to stay here in London, and I'm going to I'm going to work on the stuff that I've already started dabbling with. It's it's sort of this all or nothing moment for him. It's a, it's a pivotal moment in American history. Had Irving gone home, uh, you know, we may not have ever had the sketchbook, and we may not have had this career uh, out of Irving. Irving is the uh-huh. first American to sort of make his living. Uh, writing full-time and and that's a moment in that's a moment in history when it almost didn't happen um, But what Irving finally does is he starts writing short stories uh, That he eventually wants to publish uh, In in something he calls the sketchbook. He has a heck of a time finding a publisher for this It ends up being about 31 short stories, but he's writing them constantly throughout 1819 and 1820 and um and Irving is actually self-publishing, because this is what you do at the time, and is having a heck of a time finding a publisher. And he strikes up a friendship, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, he strikes up a friendship with Walter Scott, uh, who was at that time probably the most famous, you know, one of the most famous novelists in the world. And Walter Scott says, Irving actually goes to Scotland to visit him and stays with him for quite a bit, and it's a really formative relationship, a genuinely warm friendship between these guys. And Scott sets him up with his publisher, John Murray. Uh, and uh-huh. Murray publishes the sketchbook and sort of blasts Irving out into the world. It's like the story about Byron, who said he woke up, you know, woke up in the morning famous. Uh, Irving kind of has this happen with the sketchbook. Um, and he does something else really important with this, and I'm, I know we'll also talk about this as well. Irving understood copyright law, which, in the sense that there was no copyright law at this time, and uh, Irving does something really smart. It used to be that if you published a book in the United States, um, somebody could take that book across the ocean on a boat, bring it to London, and publish it, uh, mm-hmm. and you had, and as the author, you had no rights to it. Uh, they could publish it and make all the money off of it, and the author was screwed in the United States. Uh, you could also go the other way and take the book from London to the United States and publish it over there, and the author in the in the UK was also in trouble. Uh, and Irving at one point was, was sort of trying to set him up, set himself up in business as a middleman who would bring books from the United States to publish them, <laughs> to publish them in the UK, sort of you know stealing from authors. Um, but so, but Irving under so Irving understands sort of the trappings of copyright law and does something very smart. He publishes. His short stories, he publishes the sketchbook, uh, which ends up being published I think in seven parts, uh, simultaneously on both sides of the ocean. So he's protecting his own copyright that way by making sure he's controlling the printing of it. He prints it in in Philadelphia at the same time he's publishing it in London. So it protects his copyright. And I think that's one of the moments right there that Irving becomes a really strong advocate for making sure that American writers have copyright protection, which is guaranteed in the Constitution, by the way. Um, but Irving, you know, Irving really starts to go to bat for American writers, saying Americans deserve their own literature. And if Americans deserve their own literature, they need to be protected and compensated for it. it,
2: it, it that's, yeah, you know, the little bit of you know the legal angle that he's you know, Washington is taking at that time he, he, even even though you know he's you know kind of, kind of like, uh, been called to the bar you know, he he's really <laughs> going to demonstrate that later on as a public official uh, working on behalf of the United States in yeah. He's doing work in yeah Spain multiple and multiple capacities right yeah and the yeah it, the
0: it, embassy in London yeah
2: teachers thought that like you said he he was a dunce um, it, he he was it, it just seemed like it really took him a long time to blossom but w- once he did it, you know he really made a difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to call him a late bloomer, kind yeah. of. I mean, he, you know, he does write History of New York when he's still relatively young. You know, Irving's superpower, you know, he was, like I said, he was well read in sort of contemporary pop literature, not necessarily what we consider classics, but Irving's superpower is the power of his personality. He had this ability to ingratiate himself to anybody. Um, you know, he was in the Capitol in, uh, when Madison was president, when his brother was a congressman, and was visiting D.C. and ends up finagling an invitation to the White House from Dolly Madison. You know, I mean, he's one of these guys that, like, people just wanted him at their parties. Um, He was great company. He loved talking with the ladies. He was a good conversationalist. Um, He had a knack for showing up as dinner was being put down on the table a lot of times, but but he definitely earned his dinner. He was a great conversationalist, a great listener. That was one of his great powers. and I mean, it was one of his great charms, and I think that's one of the reasons um, that we did see him being such a later in life being such a successful diplomat. You know, he he actually at one point um, is sort of the assistant to Martin Van Buren when Van Buren is our diplomat in in London, and Irving's sort of his right hand man. And Lynn Irving is later appointed to be the the uh, the ambassador to Spain. I mean, and he's and part of it is on the strength of books he's written about Spain, and he spoke fluent Spanish. But he was also he was a smart diplomat. I mean, he, he had a diplomatic personality in a matter of speaking. So, so that was really one of his powers too. He was really personable. And I think, I, I think that's what makes Irving's writing exceptional. And that was actually one of the things that I really fell in love with when I first got interested in writing about him is, um, it's a long story. I'll go into a little bit. I, I I, I got interested in Irving because I'm a huge fan of Christmas and I had read a book all about the history of Christmas, particularly in the United States, where we have this very dewy-eyed, you know, vision of Christmas, all about the children and the Christmas carols and presents and snow and, you know, the fireplace and food. And in this, in this book, it's called The Battle for Christmas. Uh, the guy points out, the historian points out, he goes, you know, that, that never really existed um, because in the American colonies for a long time, Christmas was actually outlawed because people use this as an excuse to overeat and get drunk and there were fights going on all the time. And, and there's still remnants of it that show up in a Christmas carol. Like we wish you a Merry Christmas where people are like singing at somebody's door and they're saying, now bring us some figgy pudding and we won't go until right. we get some. And then, and then they would drag you out of your house and beat you up um, if you didn't bring them the figgy pudding. So the governors were like, we the governor said we've had it. That's that's Christmas is outlaw. <laughs> you know, it's like Alan Rickman and Robin Hood. Castle Christmas. Um, <laughs> So so this you know, so Christmas is, is sort of like it's not the it's not the glamorous, you know, ritzy holiday it is today. Irving is the one who in his sketchbook writes five short stories. They're hidden in plain sight. It's five short stories right in the middle of the sketchbook. Remember, the sketchbook is about thirty short stories. Irving's got five of them in there called Old Christmas. And in those stories his narrator, um, Jeffrey Crayon, that's Irving's sort of persona, that's also his pen name, but uh um, is, is going back to um, – is, is visiting uh, Squire Bracebridge uh, for Christmas. And they pull up in the sleigh in front of Bracebridge Hall, and they proceed to go to the dinner table, and, and everyone's having a great time, and there's a lot of food, and Irving writes about food like nobody else. And there's a lot of you know there's children singing and there's presents and everyone's saying oh boy squire bracebridge i mean he is kicking it old school this is the way christmas has always been celebrated even as irving kind of turns to the reader and says we we know this is all baloney right like squire bracebridge is out of his mind um but you know and that's part of irving's joke it was so beautifully explained it was one of those you know irving was like this is a holiday tradition that enough people picked up on that and said, you know, that should be a holiday tradition. One of those readers who fell in love with that portrayal of holidays was Charles Dickens um, and carries that forward a little bit. So Irving is sort of, again, I already talked about him with St. Nicholas and Santa Claus, is sort of inventing um, the, the traditional Christmas by making it up and just telling us, no, this is the way Christmas is always sort of celebrated. He's making it all up, uh, which is really brilliant. So those those were the stories that I sort of rediscovered Irving by reading those short stories. And the other thing I really love about him, and this is when I talk about him being a great conversationalist, is uh, I was – I picked him up ready for this to be like Nathaniel Hawthorne Puritan prose. And Irving is not like that at all. Irving speaks in a, Irving writes in this very conversational tone. Um, you know, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of sort of obscure words in it or anything like that. And, and every once in a while it sort of breaks the fourth wall. Like I said, you know, with Squire Bracebridge, he turns to the reader and he's like, Squire, Squire Bracebridge is kind of nuts. Um, Irving's always letting the reader in on it. Uh, it's a voice that's really, really surprising, especially when you compare it to other books at the time. So that was where I really fell in love with him and his style was was just – that voice is so strong and so distinct, especially in the 19th century.
2: Yeah, and and I just wanted to uh, read something, what you were saying about the fans he had and uh, how uh, much Dolly Masson found him to be a delight. You're right. uh, To his surprise and delight – Irving and the First Lady had become friends. Um, Mrs. Madison admired the young man more for his social and dancing prowess than his writing, and Irving spoke <laughs> of her fondly for the rest of his life. As for the president, while Mrs. Masson herself once noted that her husband would stand in the middle of the room with no one to talk to, Irving was impressed by the President's skills as an active listener, a most agreeable man in conversation yet looking back, Irving wondered what did he say i came to uh, i had talked entirely myself. The president in fact, was also a fan. The president pronounced me a promising young man, Irving reported, but that I talked too much <laughs> but it, it, yeah it, it, it you know just quotes like that from it, some of you, you know, your major American figures are, it just really gives you uh, an insight into. You
1: know,
2: it, it, it seemed like a, a you know, r- really nice guy to be around, and
1: you know, it,
2: um, it just gabs too much. Yeah, it's. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, that's not it, too bad. Well, he does talk too much, and he talked too much probably his entire life. And I think at one point he talks about – he sort of shakes his head sadly, and I think he refers to medicine as a, a withered apple john, I think, even at one point. So um, a, a sharp observer of, of people. In fact, um, he's in uh, – he actually attends Aaron Burr's trial almost daily when Burr's on trial. Um, and and feel sorry for Burr. I mean, Burr, Irving's family were Burrites, but Ir, you know Irving really feels sorry for Burr and goes to visit him. You know, after he's you know a beaten man, and his heart just goes out to the poor guy uh, the entire time. And Irving, you know, Irving's one of the eyewitness accounts to history. I have a colleague who wrote a book about Burr called American Emperor. It's by David Stewart, a really brilliant oh, writer. Oh, and oh, a yeah, great he, guy. He,
2: yeah, he's a nice guy. I, I, I've yeah. Had, um
0: and I and like I gave him Irving's letters um, home to his family, all about the Burr trial, because again, it's a firsthand, you know, it's a firsthand um, co- commentary on what was going on. You just you don't get that uh, that often in American history, especially from somebody who ends up being hugely famous. Um, and that's what I always thought was so fun about Irving as well. He's like he's like Forrest Gump. Uh, in the In the nineteenth century, you know like you know we 've already we 're not even that far into this conversation we 've already talked about you know James Madison and Dolly Madison and Aaron Burr and you know i mean he, and, and Sir walter scott um irving Irving tended to know you know. And everybody who was anybody, and especially as Irving himself gets more and more famous, he really is sort of our most famous man in that era. Um, you know, the famous start flocking to him. So it, as, as a biographer and a writer, he's a really fun character to write. But he really is like moving through, you know, the the famous busts on the mantelpiece of history.
2: Yeah, and you're right. Burr also requested the assistance of a rookie lawyer from New York named Washington Irving. <laughs> yeah. he, he he really isn't doesn't have anything under his belt other than family connections yeah and why is the former vice president contacting him and you know uh even right even years later irving still had no idea why he had been sent for i, I that
1: you know,
0: I think I think Burr maybe was hoping for kind of what happened. Though Irving never never did it publicly. Like Irving, you know, had, had really felt sorry for Burr. I think maybe part of Burr was like, I don't really care about his legal skills, but I want him to write something very sympathetic about me in the in the newspaper, which Irving never did. Because okay. Irving had been, you know, writing when he wrote those letters of Jonathan Oldsall in the Morning Chronicle. That was considered a Burr newspaper. So I mean, Irving was writing in in newspapers that were favorable to Burr. I think part of Burr, I think Burr was partly hoping that Irving might write something favorable about him in one of the newspapers, but Irving never did.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. There's so much to write about, and, and you know, D- David's book, uh, American Emperor, it, it, you know, really, uh, he does uh, just a masterful job of laying out everything that was going on with the trial and some of these shady dealings with the Blender Hassett's and going down the river and, you know, yeah. kind of, you know, recruiting some people. Uh, what were they really, really planning? What, you know, where were they thinking about maybe setting up this uh, <laughs> empire within America? Uh, it's, um, yeah with
0: with there, Burr as the American emperor
2: yeah yeah and, and yeah, that that whole thing seems uh like it, so so many aspects of it were not even close to being constitutional and there's Washington didn't write anything about it but he's sitting there observing the trial with all these you know like that Wilkerson Guy uh, eventually showing up, uh, give his testimony. I, it, like there's some really, uh, you know, the whole thing was just really shady. And there's some, uh, it, but um, and
0: and it's and it's great theater. And you know, Irving oh, yeah. loved writing, and Irving loved writing about the theater. Again, I, I think I think Burr was smart. <laughs> Uh, In that regard to like put Irving there, you know, because Irving again had made his name in a Burr newspaper writing about the theater. Uh, And Burr's (laughs) trial was great theater, including Wilkerson, who Irving just hated with every fiber of his being watching him, you know, prance around up there. And Irving made fun of the way he dressed and, you know, just Irving couldn't stand the guy. Um, You know, it it was good theater, good drama. I mean, I really and, and in his correspondence, I mean, it really comes through. Um it is too bad that Irving never wrote an article or anything about it. I think it would have been dynamite and I think Burr knew that.
2: Yeah, yeah it, it, there's a debating story there. It, it it's it, the, the the whole what you wrote and you know what we know from David's book. It, yeah we we know some of what was going on but I, I, dude do we know the whole story uh, uh, w- w- with what Burr was planning on doing, and you know, <laughs> uh, the, that whole thing is just yeah, no, that's great. It, could, And could David does a, David
0: does about as good a job as probably anyone's going to do in breaking it all down and you know in, mm-hmm. and digging it all up. Yeah,
2: yeah, I uh, uh, I I really like that um, um, part of you know the early. 19th century time period as well since it's, it didn't happen all that far from my house so it, <laughs> it it's of local interest to me right but yeah it, um but it, you know when one, and you just mentioned a few minutes ago about um, you know, Jeff, uh, using Jeffrey Cran uh, you know, with Salamungi, uh he, he was using uh, uh, Oh yeah. W- Will yeah, Will Wizard had, and yeah, all sorts of interesting names there. Yeah, uh Lance,
0: somebody Lancelot Longstaff, you gotta
2: like that one. Yeah, yeah, he uh when he was in um Spain writing his um, biography of Columbus, he wanted to use Fray Antonio Agapita. Egypna, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, deep in, you know, we already covered, Diedrich Knickerbocker. Uh, what does that say about him uh, using uh, four or five different pseudonyms? Yeah, I mean, again, I think part of it is
0: that it's it, – I think partly it's just fun. I mean, again, Irving loves the theater. I think this is part – this is him playing a role. Um, you know, it lets him be somebody other. It, first of all, we should make it clear: Irving always made sure people knew it was him. <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to let some some fictional character get all the credit. Like he, it was the worst kept secret that he was all these different writers. Um, but I mean, I think it let him experiment with voice a little bit. I think he enjoyed pretending to be different personas. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is is so that history of New York that's written under the pseudonym of Dietrich Knickerbocker, I, I think, again, as I said earlier, is Irving's purest – I think that's the voice that's probably closest if you sat in a, in a bar and listened to Irving talk. Um, and when he's writing the sketchbook, for the most – most of the time he's writing under the pseudonym of Jeffrey Crown, which is why it's called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crown. But there are moments in the sketchbook when Irving stops and says, hang on a second – we found this story among the papers of Diedrich Knickerbocker, who we've established is leaving papers around all the time with stories in, them, including a history of New York. Um, but he says we found this story among the papers of Diedrich Knickerbocker, and that's one of those stories is Rip Van Winkle. Um, and all of a sudden, like this is the story that that just rockets Irving to fame. And it, when Irving slips into that Knickerbocker persona. I think that's when he's really at his best and he's doing it with, with Rip Van Winkle and he does it again um for the the short story that it wasn't the last one back then but it is now. The story that when when, when they publish uh the sketchbook nowadays, usually the first of the thirty some odd stories is Rip Van Winkle and the exclamation point on the last of them. Is the legend of Sleepy Hollow? That's another one that is Diedrich Knickerbocker. So it's, I mean, it's 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 so interesting to me that like the two really memorable stories in there were the ones that were found among the papers of Diedrich Knickerbocker. When Irving's, it got that cloak on, like all the pistons are really firing as a storyteller and as a writer, I think. <laughs> it,
2: and it, it, since we have uh, touched on. Uh, his involvement in writing on both sides of the Atlantic and he, he was um, good friends with uh, Sir Walter Scott. You bring up um, that he, he uh, was uh, in, it you know, kind of sounds like um, regular contact with Mary Shelley. You know, uh, you know, th- this is what kind of like right around the time that she would uh, be uh, publishing what uh, Frankenstein?
0: Um, I, I can't remember the time period. She she had only just recently become a widow. This is around eighteen twenty five or so. Yeah, it's eighteen twenty five or so. So because yeah, okay. yeah. so, so, uh, this is when he's in he's in France, and um and somebody smarter than I will know when Frankenstein was published. I don't know, but um. She, she, you know, so she's the widow at that point, and she's very interested in Washington Irving. Um, she almost has like this schoolgirl crush on him, and she's she's asking one of his friends, um, John Howard Payne, who's sort of this, you know, sort of this, sort of this rounder. Um, to To bring her copies of Irving's letters so she can read his letters and look at his handwriting like this is the closest she can get to him right now there's no you know this, there's no Instagram or anything but she can't see pictures of him, so she wants to at least see his handwriting like pieces of paper he's touched and his handwriting and his signature, and she you know she looks at all these all this all these all these letters of Irving's and she's you know really. Really, like I said, got this little crush on him, and she's making jokes to her friends about you know, maybe them getting married someday, but their, their courtship is going so slowly that you know, it, they'll be as old as the dinosaurs by the time it actually happens. And it, I mean, it's very cute, um, and Irving's in, in, in Paris at the time, and she's trying to correspond with him, and um, she gives a bunch of correspondence to Payne to then bring to Irving. And Irving reads through all this correspondence, never really says what's going on, uh, and in his private letters writes, um, "Read Mrs. Shelley's correspondence, went to bed, and that's it. That's all we ever get of that relationship. And it's one of those staggering moments in literature where you're like, this could have been like, you know, Kenneth Branagh and and I can think of his wife, you know, like this power couple. Oh, you're right." You know, uh, especially if it would have been an international power couple, like the American writer and the English writer. I mean, it would have been fantastic. But Irving is just not interested. Irving had, had up to about 1823, been wooing another young woman. I think he was much more interested in her mother, actually. Um, and that relationship had, had hit the skids as well. So I don't, I'm not sure Irving was in the mood for another relationship anyway. Um, but but that one, that one is, is just tantalizing and annoying in the sense that Irving just completely blows it off and never says another word about it.
2: Yeah, the, uh, the same type of um, friendship with uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It, you would think that their interest in, like, you know, just say the legend of Sleepy Hollow and, you know, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner are two really Uh, Great gothic uh, literary pieces, and they really – yeah, they met, but it it didn't seem like they were – Really didn't hit it
0: off. Yeah, Ir- Irving kind of like runs into him at a party. I think that Murray, that his publisher Murray, is hosting, and mm-hmm. is not not that impressed with him at all. Um, you know, and we, we, we don't know the whole story. Maybe he just you know wasn't that great of a conversationalist. That would have been enough to turn Irving off. I think. Um, yeah, Irving. You know, Ir- Irving's Irving's fascinating in, in, in his in his taste and in then who he warms to. You know, he actually he um he meets Edgar Allan Poe when Poe's a boy, let me pose not Edgar Allan Poe at the time, because uh, Irving meets with Poe's father, uh, who's coming okay. to a meeting about business over in London and brings his son with him, Edgar Poe with him. Um, and then Irving finally meets or doesn't actually meet him, but Poe writes a letter to Irving later, um, doing what we as writers do, which is like, please blurb my book essentially. And, um, Poe sends Irving two short stories. He sends him uh, House of Usher and I think William Wilson is the other one. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and Irving, Irving just is just is almost baffled by this this House of Usher stuff. Like he says a couple, he says some nice things about William Wilson. I don't think he says anything that much about House of Usher. It's it's just Poe's already speaking a language um, that Irving just doesn't. Irving is still sort of connected to that older world, even as he's advancing the ball. Uh, you know, if, if Irving's Gothic horror, if you will, Poe is psychological horror already, and Irving, you know, Irving can't quite make that leap. Um, um, you know, it, but promotes Poe. I mean, Irving is, is is adamant in that Americans need American writers, and Poe, for his part, is grateful. Um, you know, tells his tells his publisher. You know, I, I it, tells his publisher essentially Irving blurred my book, which is what publishers want to hear. Um, but then he says, "Gosh, you know, Irving is just he's so overrated. I don't understand. And, you know, yeah, he went first. Pfft, what good is that? I mean, th- that doesn't make him great. Uh, I don't think Poe really understood or appreciated." That going first meant going it alone um, irving didn 't you know Irving had a Walter Scott of course, to help him along, but there, like there were no American role models. Um, Irving's the first American to kind of start doing this and becoming a writer and figuring out, you know, copyright. How do you keep from getting screwed on copyright? And, and you know, how do you how do you make sure your work is is high, you know edited the way you want to? Irving's doing that himself, and he's actually plant, planting book reviews at one point, having his friends write book reviews for it back in the United States. Um, Irving's figuring a lot of this out. He's creating the American you know, author, the American artistic personality for an author. And I don't think Poe really appreciated that. I mean, Poe was very interested in the work, of course, but I don't think really appreciated, you know, the fact that Irving went first meant he didn't, Poe had an Irving to suck up to. Irving did not have that. I don't think Poe ever really appreciated that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, uh, Washington was 20, maybe about 20 years older than Poe.
0: Uh, Paul, I think, was born in eighteen hundred or no, or 18, no 1809, uh, 18,
2: 1809. 18,
0: Yeah, because yeah. so, he died at forty in eighteen forty nine, so yeah, so Irving was nine about yeah about uh,
2: twenty six. I think they had twenty six years on him. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. We try not to do math on on this show. Please <laughs> yeah. so
0: somebody fact check that. Yeah.
2: It, yeah. Oh, but um. But it, in while well, I was doing some. Other other research uh, for tonight's uh, show, Um, I read some from Beneath the American Renaissance, The Subversive Imagination in the Age of Emerson and Melville by David Reynolds. Hmm. And just to show uh, another aspect of – you know the difference between uh like washington's diverse writing and you know he he was maybe a little bit you know just more gothic and uh Poe was more psychological horror type- uh typewriter um, um david reynolds uh writes if Irving had created humor from the collision of the quiet with the irrational, the frontier humorist created it by forgetting the quiet altogether, <laughs> and taking the irrational to a perverse and therefore funny extreme, and you know, eventually leads to, you know, the tall tale and yeah, you know, Mark Twain, the Twain, but yeah, the Twain. Yeah, yeah, voice, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but there is you know the sense of humor that. Uh, Washington brought to uh, his short stories,
1: you know, as,
2: yeah. you know, well, like the petticoat government uh <laughs> that are mentioned in um, Rip Van Yeah, Rip Van Winkle. Yeah, but the
0: tongue is the only tool that grows sharper by use. Another great phrase. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think partly again, Irving Irving has that, you know, has one foot planted in sort of that old world, mm-hmm. but um, you know so so he 's not cutting loose the way sort of the next generation did, because I think he st- 's still adhering to some of those norms you know the sort of that sort of erudite voice in a way um, even as he 's advancing the ball because again irving can 't really help but be funny because I think from being a great conversationalist and sitting sitting in, in, you know in drawing rooms and having conversation and entertaining the ladies and then going with his male friends and getting drunk out by the river and you know I, I think irving can 't really help but be funny there's no way it's not going to come through so Irving is still balancing you know that that sort of slapstick sensibility if you will that he can sometimes have uh with sort of the old formal ways and and you do see the evolution as the next generation comes along and as you said they sort of they sort of throw out (laughs) they sort of throw out the formality at that point and are just running their mouths at that point um, Irving Irving didn't ever, Irving didn't quite get there um, because again he was he's sort of the bridge between the two of those, but I but I think part of it is Ir- Irving is funny and and I think that voice more than anything as I as I mentioned like just hearing him talking to you um, in in his stories I mean that's I think that's really the the strength of his stories it's just, it is like sitting with somebody in a bar or in your living room or you know in a drawing room at that time telling you a story. Um, it's this very relaxed tone, um, and it makes everything much more personable. And I, I think that's one of these people loved his work. I mean, Irving Irving got to the point where if he, you know, when he was renovating his house, if he needed money to renovate his house, he would write a book um, because he knew it would sell, like Gangbusters. And so he, at one point, he eventually gets accused of bookmaking, which was, I guess, certainly fair. But I mean you know he was he was the voice readers really wanted to hear there's just something inherently entertaining about that sort of casual tone that we get out of Irving
2: one of one of the questions uh or you know part of your book that I really want to get into since i just happened to mention uh, uh later in that 19th century um is, twain leaves you know, his imprint on uh humor but um when washington was you know what high, high school age you know he's making some trips to the hudson valley and um
1: yeah
2: you Mention trying to find it real fast um, and there were those old Dutch legends and local ghost stories uh, villagers spokers of these strange cries heard in the woods where the captured British spy John Andre had been hanged and, and, and um, have right. go, go go over uh, page. Fifteen and you know there's some references about you know pi uh, <laughs> pirate you know, pirate stories yeah. and uh you know more goblins and stuff like that but um right. it, it it really seems like uh you know you get uh Washington Irving is related to the Hudson River and his uh yeah, you know, retirement home. You know, would be along <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, Terrytown uh, or you know, Sunny Side would uh, be, be right along the river, where
1: mm. had,
2: had lots of childhood memories and Mark Twain in the Mississippi and you know, D- Dickens in the Thames. Uh, you know, what is it about these? Like rivers that <laughs> uh, appeal to some of these authors. It, 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 if you th- think of the Mississippi, you know Huck Finn Fent- or Mark Twain. Some, some something it, it, it really on you know, American and you know uh, uh, uh British literature. You know, this, Scott wrote about what uh, the Tweed. hmm Um. So, so, yeah, it's just really interesting.
0: Yeah, no, it, 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 yes, it, it's a great point. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. So Irving got sent up, got sent up river. That's so terrible. Got, <laughs> got sent up, up, up river as, as a child to escape uh, yellow fever in New York, I think twice, in fact, and stayed with his friend James Kirk Paulding up in that region and was fascinated by in sort of that Tarrytown region in the Sleepy Hollow region, um, was fascinated by by the Dutch and and how you know how they the way they talked and how they you know had these great big gigantic Bibles that you opened with you know that you had to unlock and had buckles on them and you know it, he was he was so fascinated by by Dutch stories and the ghost stories he was hearing along there I mean I think part of the reason rivers are so significant is because they're carrying people and carrying information and carrying those histories you know Irving loved even going all up up the Hudson further to the Catskills and that's where Rip Van Winkle is sort of born uh, it, the story of Rip Van Winkle, takes place in the Caskills and he comes down out of the mountains there uh, up near Kinderhook, I think. So, um, you know, Irving is hearing a lot of these, you know, as, as he calls them, like, you know, the, the tales of the pirates but the wives' tales, literally, like the stories that the wives are telling each other and the ghost stories you tell to your kids to make them go, you know, come in at night and not stay out late. And Irving is a great um, Synthesizer of these stories, a great you know, he's great at like listening to these stories and compressing them and taking the interesting pieces of them and discarding the rest and then turning them into something new. I mean, it really is a Salma Gundy. A Salma Gundy is like a chef's salad; uh, it's made up a lot of different things. Um, and Irving is really good at doing this with a lot of the stories you heard. I mean, a story like. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I mean, there's stories of headless horsemen that show up in other, in other stories, in German stories, and Irving talked about when he was traveling at one point through Europe, they, they um, went into a cave to get out of a rainstorm, and somebody told a story about a headless horseman even in there. So okay. Irving was constantly hearing these, kind, these ghost stories, but he was you – know, he, again, he was synthesizing them in, in, into something brand new. Um, and so the stories feel familiar, even as they're entirely because they are. You know, again, they're 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 based in all these all these stories Irving has heard. Um, but one of the things that makes a story like Rip Van Winkle or Legend of Sleepy Hollow really important is they are distinctly and intentionally taking place in the United States. You didn't get that in 1819. Um, you know, this is the time period when Jefferson is, you know, is, is bickering with people in France about whether our animals are smaller than theirs, and so you know, it's like we're we're always trying to like you know elbow aside the British, make sure they understand that like we really can write. And Irving is the first American who like proves that Americans can write. Well, people people in London were actually actually thought he had to be English. They're like, this is an Englishman because no American could write this well. Um, and, but but Irving's stories, you know, they. Legend of Sleepy Hollow talked about the tree where they hanged Major Andre. I mean that is that is in the story. It is it is most definitely taking place in Sleepy Hollow, New York, or in a idealized version of Sleepy Hollow, New York. At least um, I've been I've been to several small towns along the Hudson up in there, and they all claim that they're originally Sleepy Hollow, even though at, there is, there, even though there is a Sleepy Hollow, New York. <laughs> there are other small towns that like to say they're the inspiration for Sleepy Hollow, um, but those stories take place in the United States. You know the Rip Van Winkle takes place in the Catskills, and they're talking about you know they're talking about the the the, the British losing the war for crying out loud in there, so um, you know that's one of the really important things Irving does. He's the first one to say, "Hey, we're Americans. We have an American literature." Um, that again, that didn't happen in eighteen nineteen. It
2: well, uh, with these you know, settings like uh, the the river. Um, in, in, in you know we get into the spanish settings w- what was um washington's creative process i, I just ha- have an interest in that it's, it's, it seems like it, you, early in the uh tonight's discussion you said that uh, it is history of new york and then uh there's a gap of 9 years or so before he he published um the sketchbook and uh, there were other other times when uh he he really wasn't writing and he started you know picked up the pen once he needed money um, it, it was kind of uh, 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 like just getting started yeah, he, he, on writing. He like, when yeah, he has that he needs period. To.
0: In, he has that period in his career that I call his professional period, in that it's you know it's he's released the sketchbook and he wants to show he's not a one trick pony, so he comes back with Bracebridge Hall, which is essentially sketchbook two. Um, You know, it's still another big collection of short stories. And then uh, by 1825, now he's got essentially sketchbook three with Tales of a Traveler. And even at that point, the critics are kind of like, dude, you're going to the well one time too many on this. And he just gets the worst reviews of his career. Um, And Irving always claimed that he never read his reviews, even as he read every word of them. Um, Mm -hmm. But that sort of like sends him spiraling a little bit. So that's when he heads to Spain. Uh, and And that's where we start to get a little bit of a gap, because what he starts to do in Spain is he starts to write nonfiction. um you know he wants to he wants to write a biography of of christopher columbus he wants to write stories of spanish history and uh, because he's the most famous man in the world he sort of you know he gets an invitation from the minister to spain alexander hill everett who says you know why don't you just be an attache to the american legion here in madrid and you can you know you can you can get into the archives here in spain you know there's no americans coming but you, you can read spanish and so you've got access to these archives so that's sort of the period he starts hunkering down. We, we we got a little bit of a gap in his work at that point because he's he's determined to write nonfiction at that
1: point.
2: Yeah, and it, so, since we're uh, talking about uh, Spain now, there um, he was given a a big honor uh, by uh, the. Mayor, where he could, you know, trying to look for the page, um, to actually go into um, all Hombra, Governor Don Francisco. De La Serna offered Irving his own apartments in the Alhambra during his stay in the city. <laughs> yeah. Or it, it, and it, it's it, – he, he was granted access to a,
0: a – uh, yeah, and, it's, like almost like, it's almost like yeah, it's almost like you gave somebody nowadays like permission to live in the U.S. Capitol for like two months or something. I yeah, and, and
2: and they aren't even a you know, Spanish citizen, and, right. and yeah, you know, and the mayor let them uh, in there to uh, do is studying for the uh, the Columbus Columbus book. and, and mm-hmm. Grenada book. I, I, right. Yeah, you know, that really says something about what people. Uh, people in high places thought of washington
1: yeah
0: i mean there's there's that power of his personality again um and again you know membership has its privileges when you're hugely famous like he is at this point now um you know he's he's arguably one of the most famous men in the world he's published internationally and again as Americans we didn't have that Irving's published in the United States he's published in uh, in England he's published in in France i mean he's, he's you know there's translations of his work which again doesn't really happen that much so he's you know he's he's very he's very famous but he's also very personable just a really nice guy um and so it 's not really a problem for them to give irving free reign again he gets he gets access to the spanish archives that they're you know they it 's hard enough when you're when you 're Spanish to get into those archives, much less American and they give him sort of free you know free entry there. Uh, to take his notes on Columbus and Irving is reading those documents in their original Spanish You know, he's not, he's not, not doing like a lot of us do where we go find the books that have the translations in it Irving's reading it in its original Spanish But has free and open access to the Alhambra sleeping in the building. He's bathing in the fountains in there He's strolling the halls just having a great time um, it, you know at that time it's you know now it's a tourist destination um back then it it wasn't it was just you know it was it was the fortress on the edge of town, and Irving lived up there and loved it it was you know had a ball was was very sad when he finally had to leave it
2: yeah um you right S- sitting on a hill above the city was its famous Alhambra, an ornate complex of Moorish buildings that included a citadel palace administrative quarters and residences irving immediately approached uh don francisco de, de la serna the governor of alhambra as well as the archbishop of granada to request complete access celebrity has its advantages open access <laughs> was granted willingly so there and i uh, yeah that yeah that must have yeah. You know, you can read some of his uh, short stories that are um, set in Spain or or somehow connected with his residence there. But and you know, that must have been just something that would really jumpstart anyone with, you know, with wanting to write poetry or. Yeah, you know, short story or so. Yeah, you know, just really the layers of history there.
0: Yeah, and and it really inspires Irving to write what he would later sort of refer to as his Spanish sketchbook. Uh, a number of years later, he would write a book called Tales of the Alhambra, um, and and it was a lot of the you know the Spanish history and the ghost stories and and tales he had heard while living and working in Spain. So yeah, so the, the Alhambra really really inspired him, even as it didn't really show up in his work for a bit, but. Um, you know, again, at this point, this is when he's writing his Columbus book and his History of Grenada, and so he's, you know, he's doing a lot of the nonfiction work. He probably would have, stayed, he probably, he, he was there, I think, almost two years, um, and would have stayed a lot longer. But they, um, he gets a letter from um, the United States saying that you're you're now the secretary to the American legation in London, and he has to go running off to London to go work for the uh, ambassador in London, who's Martin Van Buren. Uh, a, a an old a New Yorker and a family friend, uh, but that's the only thing I think that could have ever pulled him away from there was sort of this obligation to his family again, who had you, know, you know secured him that position.
2: Well, and he was uh, you know f- friends with Martin Van Buren, who would be, uh, become president in a few years, and uh, also. Was uh, James Buchanan also in, in Europe at the same time? Did I just
0: uh, I, that? I can't remember. And, oh, and actually, and actually, when Irving first gets called to London, it, Lewis McClain is the is the ambassador at that time. But but that you know, it, it, shortly thereafter that that Van Buren gets hustled off <laughs> to London as as uh as you know the the cabinet is collapsing, uh, and yeah. he ends up picking up. The, but he's with Lewis McClain, and he actually, I mean, he's he's a really good. Um, you know, secretary. He's really good at his job over there. Um, first of all, he's got a he's got a reputation, which sort of opens doors for him anyway. But he's also, again, a great, he's got great social skills, uh, probably even better than McLean does. And McLean really appreciated what he did. Um, you know, they it, 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 it was easy to go visit anybody you need. You could just say, yeah, the American minister's here, and he's brought Washington Irving with him. I mean, who's not going to open their door to that?
2: Yeah, and uh, what was it? one of those deals was was with um the 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 settling of Oregon
0: uh that came a little bit later that came when Irving okay. was uh ambassador and to it, Spain it, but he but he stopped off in in London on his way back home and I think that's where they they sealed the deal on that yeah
2: okay yeah so he, he uh, part you know this state um State of the American minister to the Court of St James had specifically requested Irving's presence in London to help negotiate the so-called Oregon question. So, the, um, yeah, and yeah, I think
0: that's it. that's in the 1840s, right?
2: Y- yeah, I think so. Now, what,
0: actually, one of my favorite moments from Irving's time with Van Buren is, you know, I mean, Van Buren doesn't get confirmed to be the minister in England. You know, it's like a big, you know, it's all politics. The U.S. Senate's mad at Jackson. And so they don't confirm Van Buren. And so, you know, Van Buren's kind of sulking around and, and Irving, you know, Irving staying up all night with Van Buren and sort of consulting him and, and, uh, and Irving is astute enough to recognize that that's a martyrdom that will take him far. And Irving actually writes in his journals, I should not be surprised if this vote of the Senate goes far toward elevating him to the presidential chair. Uh, you know, okay. Irving's Irving's as astute a politician as any politician of the era. I think.
2: Okay. And, and, oh, and I just note um, on the page prior to the Oregon question, was, uh, um, uh, Irving's recall was imminent. He had sent several dispatch dispatches to the new secretary of state James Buchanan the fifth oh, secretary Ir- Ir- Irving served on I uh, okay so he, uh, uh Buchanan wasn't in uh, Lund- uh Lund- or Europe at the time but you know he he would go on to uh, Ir- Irving it was you know kind of working with him there to, towards the end of uh, Washington's uh, career as, as a, an American ambassador, but um, uh- yeah,
0: he, and, probably, and probably could have had that post for as long as he wanted. Ir- Irving thought his recall was imminent; it was not. Um, that's a job Irving could have had as long as he wanted. Because, again, first of all, it's sort of like you see, you know, sort of like nowadays, everybody loves to appoint famous people to ambassadorships. Yeah. Um, but but Irving was really yeah. good at that job, and I think, and and actually lasted through multiple presidents while he was there. Yeah. I think, you know, he started off with Tyler, and I think Polk kept him there. Um, it, I, I think that job was his for as long as he wanted it, actually.
2: Yeah, And, and it's really uh, it, amazing where yeah, he, he was family, friends, and working side-by-side with Martin Van Buren. Uh, obviously, there's uh, a, a short stint with James Buchanan, who would become president. Like you said, you know, uh, Tyler and Polk, uh, uh, what Jackson originally appointed him as um, – the Minister to Spain so you know, he's working with many of uh, the first presidents what fifth or sixth uh, seventh presidents or something uh or you know future presidents from that 1820s to the uh, you know, about what the mid for 1840s time period and you know that you know those some of those same presidents and, um, they're going to be you know, featured in a, in a couple weeks when we cover um, the history of national road but mm. yeah you know, it's i don't think there was any direct Connection between doing this show and ha- having Roger as a guest uh, in in a couple weeks, it, it, but it, it, it uh, but if people want to give me credit for it. That's uh, <laughs> fine for the uh, you know action packed uh, programming. But um, you no, know, yeah, you know, I think after the show in a couple weeks, you know, people will see how. You know, America was really developing in in that time period uh and you know Washington's working with all those uh future presidents and minister or, uh, secretary of state and yeah i mean, I mean the, like the, the secretary,
0: secretary of State who's receiving most of Irving's dispatches at that time is Daniel Webster. You know, who's who's getting dispatches from Spain that probably don't read like any other dispatches he's getting from his official ambassadors at the time. You know, this is this is an ambassador with a bestseller. Um, And uh, so I'm I'm sure I'm sure Webster couldn't wait to open the latest dispatch from Spain um, coming in from Irving. But, you know, but to your point, I mean, Irving is, you know, Irving is there at a formative time like he's you know, he's keeping tabs on on Spain. He's watching, uh, you know, trade interests in Cuba. He's watching, you know, the Spanish debate, the slave trade at a time when, you know, we were still, you know, we were still enmeshed in, in the slavery issue. So, um, you know, so Ir- Irving's Irving's there at an important time in our relationships in Europe and he's kind of the right guy for the job. Um, and again, he's, you know, he's Typical of Irving, and this this must have been great for Webster. Like Irving's sending these almost like gossipy kind of dispatches back, talking about you know Isabella, you know Queen Isabella. He was fascinated with her, like watching and watching all the people swirling around her, trying to ingratiate themselves to her. And uh, and at one point, um, there's sort of this this uh, you know skirmish that breaks out again among warring factions there in Spain. And Irving suggests that uh, all the diplomatic corps, every ambassador. <laughs> Get in their in their coaches and form a human shield around the queen, which is an in, which is an insane idea. But like that's how devoted to the cause Irving could be. Um, but Irving's got the got the house in Spain that like that everybody wants to go to. He's got the best parties. He's got the best conversation. He's he's the one that sort of I mean he's doing the job you want your minister to Spain to be doing. He's he's got his ear to the ground. Everybody's coming to him um, with information and gossip and things whether they mean to or not because. His is the place to be. You want people want to hang out with Washington Irving.
2: Okay, and um while we're still talking about his um 17-year residence in Europe, um he um, was wasn't that the time when he he was in London and he helped uh to get Melville his first uh publishing yeah, he type he yeah. uh published in, in Europe or ha- had his first uh publisher read it, uh the, the manuscript.
0: Yeah, he they they didn't meet uh he didn't meet Herman Melville. He, he met he met his um, brother, who yeah. was yeah, who his brother who was sort of acting as his agent and Irving introduced him to to his own publisher, to John Murray. Um and and I think, you know, I think the rest is history on that part. So it, it was, you know, it was something similar to what happened with him with Walter Scott. Walter Scott said, let me introduce you to my publisher, John Murray. Uh, the guy has good taste. Um, and, and, you know, Irving and Murray went round and round and round, and they were usually mm-hmm. bickering over money. And, you know, at one point, at one point. Murray, you know, Irving thought that Murray had had promised him he was going to buy his next book. And, and when it showed up, Murray was like, this doesn't look anything like a book. This isn't ready. I'm not buying this. And Irving was just apoplectic over it. So, But, you know, but he but he and Murray would always come back together again. Murray's very important in his story. Irving made poor John Murray insane. Uh, and even as Murray very patiently and very loyally continued to publish Irving his entire life. Yeah, it, it, Um.
2: You know, Murray had a very prestigious lineup of authors and he was yeah publishing. he was the, the
0: house the house of Murray they called him yeah i think yeah. he published byron in addition to walter scott i think he published um no, i'll get i'll get it wrong it's, it's one of the brontes i can't remember now but uh yeah he was mm-hmm. he published every everybody who was anybody he was publishing at that time
2: yeah and, 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 and yeah they it sounded like it uh started off as a good relationship and you know, he's introducing Irving to Coleridge and all these other people the uh, big names in London at the in the 1820s and 30s uh but um you know i it, it eventually became uh it, it had its high points, and it, uh, it, it was a rocky relationship yeah, at times. Sure. Yeah, it, yeah it, but it, it's – you know j- just how uh, Murray uh, what, sent something uh, – sent, sent uh, an old letter back to Irving and said, <laughs> yes. well, you remember Call, you said this?
1: Called yeah, him it, out, it, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really what it was like. I it, uh but, yeah uh, you know Washington, Washington still got uh, paid uh yeah, the uh, the Columbus book was a huge success even though what, Murray what was like you know, get get rid of this uh you know pseudonym thing and yeah, there's just all, all the they were always battling, but you know th- th- that's how some things got done at that time yeah still no, goes I, I,
0: I just I just pulled up one of their letters which just you know they uh he he and Irving went round around over Murray's use of the phrase yes, I'll write to you at one point, Irving thought that meant yes, not yes I'll write to you and uh but that was the moment when, as you mentioned, Murray sends Irving back all his correspondence along with a bunch of receipts and basically says that the publication of Christopher Columbus cost me 5,700 pounds. It's only produced 4,700 pounds, like sends him all the receipts for that. Grenada cost me 3,000 pounds, and its sales only produced 1,800 pounds, making my loss 2,200 pounds. <laughs> I I have thought it better to communicate with you directly rather than through my agent. Let me have time to read your new manuscripts, and then we shall not differ, I think, about terms. I mean, Murray's just had it with him at that point. Yeah,
2: that's uh... – just part of the publishing business. (laughs) I'm sure there are a few people in the audience who are like, yeah, I've been there too.
0: Things. Yeah, I mean, sending in the receipts was just, like, the, the pettiest thing. Especially for Irving, who's, like, played the game with, again, bailing his family business out of bankruptcy. I just think Irving's probably not in the mood to play that game either. And he and, he and Murray just went, like, to absolutely ice-cold relations at that point. Again, they would warm up again later, but, boy, they were they were hot-cold there for a while. And, they, like I said, they were constantly bickering over money and and royalties. And, you know, was, was Murray going to buy this manuscript and publish it right away? And even when Irving didn't have a manuscript done, I mean, it's just, they, they just, they were constantly going round and round and Murray to his credit was for, for the most part, incredibly loyal and very patient. It, it, the,
2: the, uh, his Washington's residence in, um, Spain. Um spoke about all you know, the castles you know, of course you, you have uh stories set in uh cathedrals. Where you have uh, you know, convents or um you know, church ruins there's uh... you know to work into uh... the short stories as well but um... yeah you know, i just i got another one of uh... Washington, a collection of washington's short stories and yeah you know, we don't have to like really analyze them but it, it there, there's uh... he has one story about Legend of the two discreet statues and there's uh, something about um you could find the treasure by looking at where the two statues eyes
1: <laughs>
2: were, were uh, uh, uh looking onto the building across the street
0: yeah it's very It's national, very national treasure
2: yeah i and then you get uh, the other uh, story um legend of the Arabian astrologer and the chess pieces come to life you know you can uh, the the book I'm reading is uh, the legend of Sleepy Hollow, Rip Van Winkle and other gothic tales Mm -hmm. um it, there you know the legend of Sleepy Hollow would um, be, be considered a a gothic story but it, 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 these two spanish uh stories that I'm bringing up you know, that he wrote in the eighteen thirties um yeah, those really seem like uh, Fantasy-type pieces, um, you know, if you wanted to work in the national treasure type uh, 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 as a modern example, yeah, yeah, I think that would uh, probably fit. You know, yeah. There's something uh, – moving from New York to Spain and a you know, whole uh, – another culture and you know, the more culture uh, you know, from, from the medieval times uh laid on <clears throat> on top of the spanish culture it it it, it just it seems like it it gave him a lot of uh, directions to take uh, it, it, uh, yeah, it was par- it, 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 paranormal writing. I I don't know. Yeah, it, it,
0: yeah, no, you're right. It was it was more you know, it was it was different influences for him to compress yeah. and mm-hmm. synthesize. You know, before before we'd had sort of the Dutch influence and the yeah, Germanic, right. you know, fairy tale influence. Now we're getting sort of that we're getting more of the Spanish influence. And I think that is where you start to see the you know, the it's not necessarily Spanish, but you start to see the a little bit more of the mystical creeping into it. Arabian right. Nights, that sort of an influence yeah. creeping in. You and I were We'll we'll pull back the curtain. Well, you and I were talking offline at one point and we were comparing Irving kind of to Richard Matheson, uh and the stuff he would write for the Twilight Zone in a way. I mean it's mm-hmm. stuff that's like supernatural kind of. Um but you know, it's it's
2: it's
0: it's almost you know
2: it has a yeah, category. Yes. Yeah,
0: it's it's like I, I always talk about Legend of Sleepy Hollow. People you know, people say it's gothic and I'll say, Well well, it's it's Scooby Doo. Uh, more than anything else you know it's like you get to the end of that and Irving's got like a Scooby Doo ending you know it's like you you get, you get to choose the ending you want you can have the gothic horror ending you can have the silly ending you can have the Scooby Doo ending Irving's sort of sort of doing choose your own adventure at the end of that one but it's it's more of a Scooby Doo ending with that where the you know they they pull the top the head off the horseman and it's brom bones you know and he would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you kids um so so that you know that it, it is gothic but Irving can't resist giving it a punchline um, and I think that I think that is part of what makes you know how how we're how we're almost struggling to to compartmentalize his style in these. I think it is because he's overlaid again that sort of nod and no a wink personality that comes into a lot of his work um, that turns it into something very unique and interesting.
2: You know, and I I I, you know, I, I was glad to pick up that book. You know, he like said it's mainly um, you know gothic. Uh, stories, but it, it, it you know, like you, you said, you know, with the Twilight Zone, it, it has its own uh, category. I, it's just uh, so, so many different cultural influences on Washington that you know, this is this is what you get. It's not really straight out gothic like his friend Mary Shelley and her Frankenstein. It's yeah, you, know, uh, you know the living chess pieces telling you where the invader uh, is coming. You know, from over the mountain or up up this one pass. Yeah, in, and I mean,
0: chess. and you can and you can imagine this is the kind of story that would come into your head as you're strolling those halls of the Alhambra. Mm-hmm. You know, this this very sort of magical place that you have all to yourself. Uh, I mean, why wouldn't you come up with you know wondrous stories like that when you're in a place like that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's
0: the, um, it, it just and you know, and, and, and it,
2: Irving's writing in the Alhambra. It,
0: it, it's it's much looser uh, than some of his other work. I mean, some of his other work can get to be claustrophobic, and I think a lot of times it reflects his state of mind. I mean, he was writing, you know, the the sketchbook at a time of you know. he – they were done with the bankruptcy, but he would just come out of like this, you know, terrifying, horrible experience <laughs> bailing the family business out of bankruptcy, and you know was trying to like find his voice and find his way, and I and I think that I think that affects the the feel of some of those stories in there. Whereas the Alhambra is something that he wrote at a very happy time in his life. You know, there's a lot of ghost stories and things too, but it, it's it's hard to explain it. It's a it's it's a very open narrative a lot of the work in this it's a, it's 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 a much looser structure i think irving's been i think he's in a really good place at the time he's you know i don't think it comes it doesn't come out till he's back in the united states um but the inspiration for that i think he was in a good place at that time
1: and,
2: and you know and if you want more of the traditional gothic uh paranormal type literature you, you, you do have the guests from uh, gibbet island uh, that's probably and it's, more. And yeah, it's
0: that's, the, the, the Flying Dutchman story is in the Tales of the Traveler, I think. So that's a couple of years before that. But
2: okay, well, yeah, I, I was just going to say, yeah, that uh, that Gibbet Island one.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: I, yeah, I think that's a, yeah, uh, you know, just a, a really neat, um, uh, uh, ghost, ghost story as, as what, yeah, you know, that's your traditional, uh ghost story but you know, the fantasy ones uh i really didn't realize that until you know I started reading your book and i was like oh i need mean, i need you know, to read a little bit more of uh, this this his, his um uh residence in spain and it's an influence on him and i was really impressed with um you know that Time in his life and uh, the effects it had on his uh, writing. It, it, you know, I think he, you know you really developed uh, all those aspects of his life in, into you know a really fascinating biography.
1: Let's see well, I-
0: and then we. Uh, well, I, pre- I appreciate that. And then we've we've got sort of the next. Pivotal moment comes along um, right after that because he's in Spain and that's when he is called. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, he's not in Spain yet. It's, it's 1832 is when he's um, called to go back home. I mean, he's been he's been um, he's been working in. Uh, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I've forgotten it. I, I can't I can't I, I I've forgotten my timeline. He goes home in 1832 after 17 years abroad, um, and this is the moment when. We bring um, Charles Dickens into the story, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or, does yeah, Dickens come, or does Dickens come later? No, Dickens. Yeah, Dickens does come into the story at this well, point, uh, and this is this is another it, one of those moments I love. Go ahead.
2: A, 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 uh, Dickens uh, makes his tour of first tour of America in 1842.
0: Okay, so he's com Yeah, see, I'm getting my timelines conflated here. So he comes. So Dickens visits the United States. We don't do math. After, so yeah, after numbers, Irving has come home from Spain, not from England, right?
2: Yeah, and
0: well, I've lost. I've lost. My, yeah, my my brain's just rotted. I've lost my timeline in my head now. At this point.
2: Okay. Well, uh, you know, one of the um, you know, six or seven books, you know. <laughs> brought out to my desk for this was uh Dickens's American Notes and in uh I think chapter um, <clears throat> towards the end of chapter 8 uh Dickens does talk about uh that these visitors to whatever their station were not without some refinement of taste and appreciation of intellectual gifts and gratitude to those men who by the peaceful exercise of great abilities, shed new charms and associations upon the homes of their countrymen, and elevate their character in other lands, was most earnestly testified by their reception of Washington Irving, my dear friend, who had recently been appointed minister at the Court of Spain, and who was among them that night. And and it goes on to talk about uh the madness of american politics.
0: <laughs> so there we have the timeline it's was by dickens himself. We now know
2: where yeah, we are. Yeah, and 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 he mentions, you know, my my dear friend Washington Irving. So, um yeah, um uh, yeah, uh, yeah, so de- there we are uh, you know, yeah, you de- develop a little bit more uh, some of these receptions and parties. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. The, the the relationship between Dickens and Irving is really is actually really fun because th- this this is where I've conflated my time. So Irving and, and Dickens strike up a friendship just through correspondence initially. Um, mm-hmm. This is when Irving's gone back to the United States in 1832, and he's there until about 1842. I think he's there ten years, and you know that's when he's starting to. Think about constructing his own house and so on, but Irving Irving is you know constantly reading English newspapers because you you know he'd been in in the embassy over there, so he's still reading English newspapers, and he starts reading um he starts reading Dickens work in in the, in the period I think I think Old Curiosity Shop is one that he really uh-huh. likes but he starts writing Dickens fan letters, and the two of them start corresponding and sort of strike up this friendship. And so years later, when Irving has come back to the United States after having served in Spain and Dickens is on his American tour, um, Irving hosts a dinner for Dickens in New York City. Um, And this was going to involve Irving making a public speech, um, which is something Irving absolutely dreaded. This is how highly he thought of Dickens, though, and that he was willing to stand up and make a speech in Dickens' favor um, because he admired Charles Dickens so much. Um what happens ultimately is Irving, stand, Irving has a speech prepared to read uh, about him and Dickens and, and what a great writer Dickens is. And when Irving stands up, he leaves his speech folded up under his plate and absolutely chokes and can't deliver the speech and sits down completely heartbroken. And Dickens, the consummate pro – Stands up and just bails him out with just this magnanimous, gorgeous speech about, you know, I came over here to see the, you know, the, the most famous man in America, and there he sits. You know, he's just constantly all about how great Washington Irving is and what a great friend he is. Just a really wonderful moment between these two. Um, but the other really cool thing that happens when Dickens is visiting is Irving invites him to come stay um, with his, stay at his home that he's building in Carytown, New York. That Irving is called Sunnyside, constantly under construction. Irving's constantly pulling, pulling, building, pulling stuff down and building stuff back up. But has Dickens come out there and stay with him? And Irving is staying at the house at that time with his brother Ebenezer. And this is. Years before a Christmas Carol is written, and Dickens is a big fan of those Irving Christmas stories we talked about a little earlier. In fact, tells Irving at one point how he carried you know the sketchbook around with him, and even carried around the history of New York until the you know the pages fell out of it. So, Irving, so Dickens is a fan from way back and knows those Christmas stories very well. Uh, so I think Irving uh, shaped and influenced in some form. I don't think we want to overstate it, but like definitely had an influence on Dickens and the writing of a Christmas Carol.
2: Okay, well, you know, uh, Ebenezer is a ge- giveaway there in the time period too, with you know, 1842 and what by the uh, Christmas later that year, uh, the Christmas Carol came out.
0: I, I can't remember the year of a Christmas Carol, but yeah, it was, this was this was pre-Christmas Carol when he was with Irving, with, with Washington and Ebenezer Irving.
2: Okay, Yeah, it's uh I think it came out in like for uh 1842 or 43. Yeah. So it'd That's be close, like yeah. The, yeah, the next the Christmas of that year or the following year, but yeah, you can see the influence and yeah, there's um, um it it was also at those um let me just um, so, in another book, I had um, the, the Raven, the, the Raven and the Whale by Perry Miller. Yeah, that uh, that talks about the dinner for Dickens at the City Hotel on February eighteenth, eighteen forty-two, and. Um, Um, I guess one of the things that was said in that dis- discussion um, that, that uh, Washington didn't bring up, but uh, Perry says, what, sir, he cried across the unheeding room to Irving in the speaker's chair with Dickens tra- straining to hear, huh. is the present condition of the field of letters in America. Cornelius answered that it is anarchy because America is sown broadcast with foreign publications. He did not expect a copyright law automatically to produce American geniuses, but he protested the fraud practice, not so much on pirated and unremunerated Englishmen as upon the as upon the native youth who would like to add something to the happiness, something to the renown of their country. So, um, something, like, you know, you uh, you know, had gussing the copyright or earlier in the day, or that was part of the uh, discussion at the uh, dinner and the American youth, um, you know it need to be protected too, and I think you brought that up
0: yeah I mean yeah, this, this towards this the beginning, back, yeah, this gets back to Irving's you know strong belief in that Americans uh were entitled to deserved their own literature, and if you want <laughs> but as you constantly reminded people, if you want American writers, you have to pay American writers, and you also have to protect their copyrights and so Irving was constantly striving to um you know. protect American copyright, to to help figure out legislatively um, how that could be done. And he was lobbying for most of his life. I don't don't believe in his lifetime anything significant happened. I think it happened shortly after he died. But it certainly would have been something they would have been discussing even at the Dickens dinner, um, but didn't get it in his lifetime. But that was was one of the, you know, Irving was adamant, American literature for Americans. Um, That was us making our way into the world. And Irving, as I mentioned earlier, had proven that Americans could write. <laughs> Darn it, they'd arrived on the world stage. You know, we had a culture, and our short stories were going to take place in the United States, and they were going to have a distinctive voice, and they weren't beholden to, uh, you know, to, to, the, to the British, um, you know, standards of writing or, you know, some self-imposed restrictions on, on the quality of art and the quality of voice or anything like that. So, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was an American revolution of letters in a sense. As well, and Irving was sort of leading the way, whether he wanted to or not. But he was, you know, again, he was he was the one who went first, and the first guy through the doors. Sometimes the guy that takes the bullets, and I think Irving took the bullets going through the door first on that. Again, you had somebody like Poe, who who crapped on him, Um, even as even as Irving was fighting hard for Poe's right to publish. So um, so Irving Irving was always, I think, his heart was always in the right place on it. Didn't didn't achieve the legislative victories on it in his lifetime, um, but was constantly knocking on the door.
2: Okay, yeah, and uh, James Fenimore Cooper, you know, Bryant oh, right. and Ir- yeah, Ir- Irving were the big three leading American authors at the time. Yeah, they're uh still popular today.
0: Yeah, and Irving and Cooper, so Ir- Ir- that's another relationship that uh th- that well, I I would characterize it, I guess, as they in the same way Irving and, and, and John Murray went round around. He and Cooper went round around. Really, it was Cooper who went round around. Irving not so much. Um, Ir- Irving really helped Cooper. He, that was another American writer that he helped get his first book published with uh, with Murray, I believe again. So um, he, you know, Irving had bent over backwards to help Americans and help Americans get published and advance the ball for American writers. Cooper never really. Uh, I think sort of like in, in the same sense, Poe didn't either. I don't, I don't think Cooper ever really truly appreciated that. Um, mostly Cooper got very, got very jealous of Irving's money or at least how much money he perceived Irving was making. Irving never really made a lot of money, partly because he was bad with investments. Another problem was he had a brother who spent all of his money. Um, Irving did okay. He built a very nice house with it. Um, but you know, Irving was one of the reasons he took the, the job as ambassador to Spain was because he needed the regular salary, but you know, er, Cooper was always counting other people's money, um, and was constantly counting Irving's money. And, you know, at one point, John Jacob Astor dies the one of the richest men in the world who's a friend of, of Irving's and actually makes Irving the executor of his will. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Irving, Irving's got just enough law in him, I guess that, 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 uh, <laughs> that Astor was comfortable doing that, and and you know Irving had written about Astor in, in his book A Story about about Oregon, but anyway, um, the the person who was the most upset about that was John Jacob a- I'm sorry was James Fenimore Cooper who was convinced that Irving had just made a ton of money off of off of this deal. Uh, again, was constantly counting everybody's money. Uh, the irony behind it, I guess, is that um, Cooper died before Irving did, and Irving presided over Cooper's funeral service. <laughs> Ir- Irving had the last word, I guess. But, yeah, but anyway, yeah. it was one of those fights that it was a one-sided fight. Cooper was always Cooper was always really tightly wound uh, on this, and I don't think Irving really really ever got all that upset about it. But boy, Co- Cooper could really get fierce But you know, counting Irving's money was what really set Cooper
2: off. Okay, and, and uh, yeah, I, I was had a note to you know tie in that. Uh, Irving's law degree did pay off, and it is—you uh, may have seen some of it as being a diplomat. You know, may have learned a few things, but you know he, he did uh, it, uh, become John Jacob Astor's uh, executor. So you know, he, he he did put his legal training to work. Yeah, and there's, if,
0: if you visit his home, his Sunnyside home there in Terrytown, they'll tell you a, a really funny story uh, about him putting his legal skills to work as well um, <laughs> as he's building his house there on the banks of the Hudson, and it's, it's a beautiful house, and it has this beautiful view of the river, and he had trees planted, and then he was cutting down trees in other places to make sure he had this beautiful, unencumbered view of the river, <laughs> and then the railroad went right through the middle of it. Uh, and, and that's the point at which Irving apparently like, you know, kicked into lawyer high gear and went down and started like filing all the paperwork to try to bog it down and slow it down and stop it. If he could, it didn't end up being successful, but Irving knew the legal traps to run and ran those traps for years, trying to stop the railroad did not win that one. So maybe his legal skills, you know, didn't pay off in that one, but he knew enough to try to slow the process down. And if you take the, if you take the train up the Hudson river towards, you know, like, uh, uh, towards Albany, uh, uh-huh. You have to look, you have to, or if you blink, you'll miss it, but you can actually still see his house from the train. Okay. You
2: know, we have, we're going to have to do a field trip up, <laughs> up there, a nightlight field trip. Hopefully, we have um, probably about 15 minutes left, and, you know, we'll We'll get the archive to you tomorrow, and, and Barbara will do her thing and get get it posted tomorrow afternoon. Uh, hopefully, uh, you'll be able to get this uh, to Booger. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to give a shout out to Curtis
0: Armstrong, uh, who we all—if you're a Gen Xer like me—you remember him from things like uh, Better Off Dead. Uh, Booger and Revenge of the Nerds, probably the thing we know him best for, and Risky Business. Uh, he was the one who talked about being chased by Guido the Killer Pimp. Um, Curtis is a is a devotee of the works of Washington Irving. He's also a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes, for example. Just a really well-read, really interesting guy um, who I, I think will uh, love to listen to this conversation. So, Curtis, if you're listening, how's it going? We're glad to have you.
2: Yeah, uh, I- I, I I I was so thrilled that you told me that uh, you know you uh, get get the archive to him or you know hopefully he's listening live and uh, yeah that, he he was so, such a big part of my youth uh, gr- growing up with airplane and Caddyshack vacation sixteen candles and. You know, I want my two dollars from Better Off Dead and and the h- h- Curtis's immortal line, master. Yeah, that, that that's about my life. You know, look, looking for <clears throat> someone to teach you how to burp uh, really loudly.
0: And I can I can highly recommend his memoir to everybody too. And if you get the audiobook, he reads it. So uh, there's a free plug for you.
2: Watching some some of his, his videos. Uh, prior to the show and, and the, uh, you know, the tri, tri-lambda, <clears throat> uh, okay. fraternity and all, you know, all all the stories, uh you know, the pan, panel had, uh, for, from those, uh, couple, couple movies. And it's just h- hilarious to listen to him talk. So, uh, Oh, he just uh,
0: responded to me on Twitter. Said, "Send me the link when it's available." So he's not yeah. listening live, but he'll take the link as soon as it's up.
2: <laughs> Hi, Curtis. <laughs> That's great. Uh, <laughs> that makes my night. Uh, <laughs> so, and uh, you know, hopefully, this uh, you know, even with the uh, little tech thing at the beginning, hopefully, uh, you know, still want to. Uh, come back you know i think it, it may have to turn that you know your jim henson biography over to uh barbara since it's her network uh <laughs> but 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 um yeah you yeah know, you know let's do a, a little preview of uh what people could expect
1: of, uh,
2: you know, with your Jim Henson biography, and it, it, what got you interested in writing about Jim Henson?
0: Um, uh, well, again, if you're a if you're a Gen Xer, like both you and I are, I mean, why why wouldn't you want to write about Jim Henson? I guess first of all, um, you know, we were sort of the first generation. I, w- I always call myself Sesame Street Generation One Point Oh, because uh, you know I was. I was not even yet two, or uh, or I guess I'd barely turned two, when Sesame Street debuted, and like we we were you know nine or ten when um, the Muppet Show aired, and we were there when Fraggle Rocker, you know, so it was like we were the first generation that always had him. Um, my mother had always told me when the Muppet Show came on, oh, I remember I used to watch Rolf the dog on the Jimmy Dean Show, and you know, and thirteen year old me got so annoyed with my mother, like that can't possibly be right, mom. There were no Muppets back in the old days, and of course she was right um Ralph was on the Jimmy Dean show in the 1960s um but you know it was it was one of those uh, stories I, I had been reading um I was on Jim Henson's Wikipedia page at some point in about 2008 I had just finished the Irving book and um I was reading something on on that page and I and I thought gee I wonder where they where they got that and I went down to the bottom of the page to see the citations because um, I always say, like, like anybody really cites anything on Wikipedia that well, but Muppet fans, I learned, are fantastic about citing their sources. And all the sources they cited were about the work. It was Jim Henson, you know, the, uh, designs and doodles, and Jim, you know, it was just all these books about the work. There was no biography of him. And at that point, he'd been he'd been dead, you know, almost twenty years. And I just thought, well, gee, that's really that's really fascinating. I wonder why there's no biography of him. And I set out, first of all, to see if somebody was already doing it. And then when I found out there was nobody doing it, I set out to be the one who did it, which took about uh, two, almost three years um, because Jim has, um, you know, he had a, a wife and five kids. Um, and you have to you you have to meet with all five kids and with the widow and and sort of make your case because the thing about it's not like Washington Irving's papers have all been collected and collated and notated uh, they continue to find letters all the time but for the most part they've all been collected by the University of Wisconsin and they're all collected in these beautiful black hard covers with gold lettering on the front and you know I have all those in my house and and I can write about Irving using his letters and papers which I can get in books. Jim Henson's letters and papers are privately held. They're they're not at the University of Maryland where he went to college. They're not at the University of Connecticut where the great puppetry program is. Um, They're privately held in the Jim Henson Company archives in Long Island City, New York. So it was one of those things where to do his biography the way I wanted to, which generally the way I like to do biographies, try to let my subject uh, talk to you as often as I can, um, was I really needed to have access to those letters and papers. And you know that was one of the discussions I was having with even with Lisa Henson. At one point, she said something like, "You know, if we tell you no, are you going to go do this anyway?" And I said, "You know, I don't. I don't think I can because what's so important to this project is his voice, not mine. Uh, and the only way to get his voice into it was to have access to his papers. Because as I found out, Jim saved a lot of stuff. He tended to save everything." and um didn't talk all that much um that was the hardest part is because he didn't sit for interviews that often um it's not like when i was writing about george lucas who's been interviewed constantly since he was like 26 years old um jim didn't sit down all that often there's there's not that much you know not that much not that many interviews to go to but in the archives you know just being able to find out what he wrote in internal memos to his staff and you know in and you know drafts of drafts of uh, you know, Broadway shows that he wanted to put on in the early 1970s and early drafts of the Muppet Show. I mean, that's where his voice really starts to come through, is even in something like that. In those business documents, so that was what that that was really the only way to do his story justice was to have access to his voice more than anything else. So, so even, okay. so getting that access was all part of the journey as well.
1: Okay, is
2: there some kind of commonality between Washington Irving, Jim Henson, George Lucas and uh Dr Se- the, the Dr Seuss biography it is, is, is there's something that uh yeah there might be a little bit of uh, fantasy worlds uh connecting all, all of them but is there s- something that draws you to these certain topics.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the common threads through all four of them is they were all sort of the founders of our, you know, American imagination. Okay. At various point at various points in our in our history in our culture, um, they were our. You know, that, that's the thing that's, that's so cool and so much fun about Irving. Like Irving was our pop culture at that time. Like you know, he's 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 Stephen King, he's John Grisham. You know, I mean, he was the guy that when like I was saying earlier, when he needed to renovate his house, he would write a book because like Stephen King or like John Grisham or somebody like that, the book sold enough that he could renovate his house or put a new wing on his house or whatever he needed to do. He was our pop culture at the time. Uh, he was the pop culture of the era. Um, he was probably more famous even than some of my other subjects. Actually, I was I was you know I was I was initially trying to pitch him as sort of like. The Sinatra of the 18th century and the 19th century. Um, but he's even sort of beyond that. And uh, there's not really a pop culture figure like him. I mean, he's almost the biggest one I've done in a manner of speaking because he was. Our American popular culture in that era Um, you know so famous that everybody you know people wanted they would come to his house and beg him to run for run for mayor of New York City you know and everybody wanted him to plug their books they wanted a kind word they wanted an endorsement they wanted to say they were friends with him they wanted to be invited to Sunnyside Uh, people would go out to his property and start breaking branches off of his trees so they could take them back home and say they had a piece of one of Washington Irving's trees. I mean, it was just crazy. So, you know, he was our pop culture at at the time, but also like the other four, like really taps into the American imagination. Um, You know, Dr. Seuss, Jim Henson, George Lucas, Washington Irving. I mean, that's one of their big commonalities. They all define, uh, you know, American culture and the American imagination in their eras and in their chosen topic, you know, Irving in the, in the master of the short story, Seuss, the master of children's love, Lucas, the master of, you know, film, uh, creative film narrative and Jim Henson who's you know sort of the, the the master creator of the muppets and and you know really reform really changed the way puppetry looked on television and was always pushing the envelope on filmmaking. So so that's one of the big through lines all four of those guys have.
2: Well, uh, okay, that uh that that makes sense and I'm I'm sure Barbara is really going to enjoy <laughs> yeah it does seem funny well, because you know irving i I did Irving and I
0: had Jim Henson and they're like you know hundred and seventy years apart <laughs> but, yeah but um but you know they they really are the the popular culture of their era
2: yeah i i see that, uh, you know the American uh, imagination yeah. developers or and, and you know yeah, even yeah, yeah, from, like from
0: sort of a from sort of a business perspective I haven't thought a lot about this, but you know one of the things about Henson Lucas, and Dr. Seuss is they were all you know really adamant about controlling their product controlling the marketing of their product you know like Mm -hmm. it's henson and lucas like you know they wanted to touch everything that was going to be marketed um irving is kind of the same way irving's the one who when his books are getting ready to be published in america he tells his friends write me a positive review you know it's sort of a sock puppet review but he's like write me a review in the newspaper so like he's paving the way for his brand uh, you know, for his marketing in that era, which is like the book's going to come out to rave reviews. And he was the one who went through and like made sure it did all the editing on it and made sure that, you know, was, was complaining about it being over punctuated at one point. And, you know, he's really, he's really controlling the marketing of his brand in the same way that Jim Henson, George Lucas, and Dr. Seuss all did.
2: Cool. Uh, okay. Well, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about the development of, Kermit the Frog and all the other Bert and Ernie working with Frank Oz. It should, you know, hope we can get you back sometime soon. For I would love to do that, uh, and hopefully uh,
0: for that one, Barbara and I can talk for four hours.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: it, it sounds sounds like it. Okay, yeah, we have oh, probably probably uh, three minutes uh, left. Is is there anything else? uh you like to say about washington Irving, uh, uh you, know, you know promote a website do you have any uh yeah you, know, you you know, you had uh a dinner with um mark ol he's uh you know him he's gonna be uh, re- returning in about a month that's that's some pretty cool stuff so uh we have mutual friends Booger that's and awesome. mark ol now
1: <laughs>
0: I I guess I guess what I'll leave everybody with is um, so I was so glad to hear you, Mark, talk about enjoying uh, my book on him because one of the things I wanted to do with Irving is um, I would say his his bust sort of fell off the mantelpiece over maybe the last hundred years in American literature. Um, You know, I I was an English major in college and we sort of skipped him and went right to you know the Mark Twain era and -hmm. the more and it it was sort of like we were told that Washington Irving was here in. he wrote *Legend of Sleepy Hollow* and Week, and then we moved on. Um, so, so he's sort of the forgotten founding father, in a sense, of of, of, of our literature. Um, but one of the things I really wanted people to um, come to appreciate in his life is is not even just not just the work, which is important, but just what a fascinating guy he is, and how he's the only one I think who could have blaze the trail the way he he did it uh he had the right personality for it he was he was uh, you know he was brilliant when he needed to be you know he, he, yes he was he was declared a dunce but when it came time to inventing viral marketing irving invents viral marketing you know uh when it comes time to figure out how to crash a party at the white house irving can crash a party at the white house so so i, I what i really hope is that readers will read the biography and fall in love with irving and then want to go read his, his books because of that. Um, you know, the books are important because of what they did for Americans and American literature. But I I also hope you really come to appreciate, um, just how, how interesting he is and, and what a life that he led. And and I think you'll have a lot of fun reading it because again, as I said earlier, he really is kind of like Forrest Gump. You know, you, you get to you get to see me interacting with Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Dickens and Martin Van Buren and and you know Queen Victoria, who he, he he writes in his journal. He sees her right at the beginning of her of her you know long reign and talks about how her mouth hangs open all the time. So you know, so all these famous characters that you know are moving in and out of Irving's story, and he's the main character in it. So I just. I think he's really fun i think he's really fascinating and i hope you read the biography and just you know and, and take away a real sense of what just what a really fascinating guy he was and and i think you'll come to appreciate and understand why everybody wanted him as their dinner guest and i think maybe you'll want him as your dinner guest as well
2: sounds great okay we're almost out of time so you can learn more about brian by going to brianjjones.com uh, thank you, Brian, for the wonderful evening, and uh, you know we look forward to ha- having you return sometime soon. You bet. Uh, th- yeah, thanks, everyone. S- see you next week.